Welcome to Policing in the Border, a series of interviews comparing the history of policing in the United States and Canada. My name is Max Hammond. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University. This is the second interview in a series that will explore the history of policing in Canada and the United States. With this series, I hope to shed some historical perspective on a topic that has much contemporary interest in academic circles and the broader public. In the early 20th century, the Detroit-Windsor border became the busiest crossing point between Canada and the United States, setting the stage for social and economic links between these two cities for years to come. In many respects, the Detroit-Windsor border connected rather than divided these two spaces. The connectivity of a border is one of the reasons why it is so heavily policed. Canada is often seen as more orderly and law-abiding in contrast with its southern neighbor, but the history of the Detroit-Windsor border tells a different story. Alongside tourism, legal trade, and rapid industrial development emerged a vibrant illegal industry, Windsor looked the more sinful. Crossing the border became easier when the Ambassador Bridge opened in 1929, and in 1930 the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel opened. It was the height of prohibition, and alcohol, heroin, and prostitution markets were well-known reasons that many crossed the border. Windsor, the border town, developed the reputation Sin City North. Dr. Holly Caribou has traced the growth of these vice economies that emerged in the post-war era by following smugglers, sex workers, as well as the police officers and investigative journalists. Her book, titled Sin City North, Sex, Drugs, and Citizenship in the Detroit-Windsor Borderland, was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015. It describes how the bars and brothels of Windsor and Detroit were filled by a united desire to experience the freedom of crossing the river. Not everyone was sanguine about the close ties between the cities. The book ends with the spectacularly violent race riots that rocked downtown Detroit in 1967. The border was closed, and residents of Windsor could only watch while across the river, Detroit burned. The relationship between the two cities would be forever changed. However, as Caribou shows, calls for reform and stronger border policing had always been part of the struggle to keep the border open. Transit cards were printed, inspection booths were created, police investigations were stepped up, and border guards were hired. Understanding the border zone means understanding this pendulum of vice and order regulation and freedom. Taking us beyond the Prohibition era, the book shows how vice was also intertwined with Cold War anxieties and the politics of class, gender, and race. Border transgressions were not just about state sovereignty. As Sin City North shows, the meaning of vice and order cannot be separated from the efforts of residents to define and express their own understanding of community and belonging. Caribou argues that these tensions are inherent in the conception and understanding of citizenship and belonging. Issues of vice in the Detroit-Windsor borderland need to also be located at the intersection of gender, race, and class. Dr. Holly Caribou, welcome. I'm so pleased you're here to talk about your book. Thanks for inviting me. So your book opens in 1950 with the criminal sentencing of a Canadian bootlegger, Joseph Asif, by this county magistrate, um, Joseph Handerhan, for bootlegging. What can you tell us about this court case and why did you start the book in this way? So I started the book off for a few reasons. Um, this was really one of the earliest uh, you know, sources that I found that really got me into this whole project. Um, and it was a relatively minor case, a kind of local bootlegging case, although he was pretty profound, about 5,400 uh, illegal transactions within about 60 days was what he was actually charged with. But what was so interesting is that this was a local case that was covered in McLean's magazine. So it was getting national coverage in Canada. And it was really speaking to what the, the magistrate Hanran seemed 
was a growing problem in Windsor and that he was essentially declaring that this was just one of so many cases he'd been seeing of all sorts of vice related crimes happening. And you can get the sense from the article, he's just sort of just exhausted with sort of dealing with case after case and essentially accuses the Windsor Police Department of complicity in turning a blind eye to local activities. And so it's a story in some ways with all of the kind of sensational aspects to vice-related stories generally, right? It's got the illegal activities, crime, cover-ups. And so I, I sort of it piqued my interest in what was happening. Is there really something seriously wrong in Windsor as the, the article was declaring to the, the national audience? Um, and it, it, it sort of was, got me thinking about how to, how to turn this into kind of a borderland story about policing and regulation and what was actually happening along the border. So it's, I mean, it's a story of scandal. What, what, how would you say is, what's the role between the police and the public image? Yeah, I think public image is really important, um, and particularly around borderlands and, and ideas that people have about border spaces as sites that are inherently dangerous or that facilitate criminal activity. And perceptions of lawlessness, particularly in Canada, I think are, are interesting and, and sort of fascinating to think about the relationship between the US and Canada, how they're represented sort of differently. And the public and, and sensationalism around crime is, of course, has always been sort of the, the public's interest. And so that was something that I really wanted to kind of dig into. How were people experiencing this sort of in lived realities, but then how were these sort of construed in public opinion and, and what can we learn from either uh, the overlap or the disconnect between those sort of those two sides of it? Is there a, a contrast that you would draw between the Canadian and the American perceptions of the of, of vice and of criminality or the police involvement? So I, one of the, the relationships that I'm, I'm particularly interested in there is thinking about how Canadians understood crime in the United States and then how Americans understood crime on the Canadian side of the border. And in a lot of ways, there was particularly on the Canadian side a perception of the United States as sort of more lawless, potentially more dangerous as American cities as, you know, sort of corrupt. And yet, in, in the local Detroit-Windsor context, many Detroiters look to Windsor as a site of sin and vice and sort of immorality in some ways. And so it's sort of the, the perception of the other back and forth that I think is, is such a, a fascinating dynamic to look at. And that in some ways is sort of inherent in North American border towns um, outside of just Detroit and Windsor. I was really interested in tracing this, how do we understand um, and sort of perceive the other, another side of a border, uh, what draws us to that? How do we get misconceptions or, or sort of how are those built into our, uh, those, those relationships? Yeah, Windsor is this Tijuana of the North. <laughs> um, and I think that encapsulates this whole idea of this mystique of crossing into an other space which, where you can get away with things that you wouldn't do at home. The relationship between Canada and the US is often seen as um, cooperative um, rather than antagonistic. Um, and that's this particular contrast with the American and Mexican border. Um, so can you comment on, on where, where this book sits in, in that discussion of, you know, what are the borderlands of, of the United States and how, what's the relationship between Canada and the United States? And, and why did you want to talk about Windsor and Detroit? Well, I'll start with why Detroit, Windsor. I grew up actually in the Detroit area. So, um, and then I moved to Ontario for school and I was there for about 10 years. Um, and so I was really, it, it kind of grew out of my understanding of that region and experience crossing the border, living on both sides and, and then kind of thinking about that dynamic. Does that give you a particular sense of, of a normalcy? I mean, do you think that, that gives you a particular understanding of this 
connection between these two spaces as opposed to a division? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Crossing regularly, participating in economies on both sides of a border, going through immigration processes. So all of that, I think, kind of makes you just much more aware of the dynamics that both connect and divide people on, on each side of the national line. And so I do think that in a lot of ways, especially in if you read national news stories or discussions about borders, there's this conversation that, that happens up here, but actually on the ground, people experience those spaces much differently and much much more personally. And people are connected through family and work right across the border. And that's something that really falls out of national debates. We focus on crime, we focus on smuggling, we focus on border patrol or customs. So what is the difference between the northern border and the southern border? So I, I think in some ways it, it differs significantly in terms of um, public perception. So the idea of the U.S.-Mexico border as a space of lawlessness, of violence, of hyper-policing, and this idea that the border doesn't really, there's, there's not much of a border, or it's not really thought of particularly dramatically, in, at least from the U.S. perspective looking north. So bo- both of those images are sort of deeply problematic and inaccurate. So in some ways, I actually, I I think it's important not just to think comparatively about U.S.-Canada and U.S.-Mexico, but then to think about each border region as sort of its own space and that shares commonalities with other border towns, but that has its own unique dynamics as well. When you talk about uh, U.S.-Canada border, right, there are all sorts of different types of crossing spaces, border towns, and that that reshapes the experience. So in some ways, it's less a comparative on U.S.-Canada for me and more thinking about each sort of localized context and how that fits into our standard understanding of uh, borders and how how people experience them. I I mean, I I certainly think that there's, for people that live in, say, Detroit and Windsor, um, you're acutely aware of the border that's literally running through the region. A one mile separates the two cities. If you stand in downtown Windsor and you look at the skyline around you, you're really seeing Detroit. And there is, you know, a real uh, connection. You see border patrol agents, you know, in the city. So I think that they are sort of inherently borderland cities. But I will say unevenly, and that's something I kind of try to deal with in the book, um, and that in my own research I kind of struggle with, because when I was in Windsor, it was always a border town. It was evident in sort of everywhere you, you sort of go in Windsor, there's this looming presence of Detroit and the United States more generally, and it's more muted in Detroit than in Windsor. And I think part of that is the, the size disparity between the two cities. Uh, Detroit's just a much larger urban center. I think that that makes a difference, but it, it sort of feeds into some of this larger dynamic between Canada and the United States, the larger politics and economic the relationship between them that in some ways, I you know, I talk about standing in Windsor, researching there, it was evident in all the sources. In Detroit, I really kind of had to look a little harder for think about what that border meant. And so I think that it's there is a clear borderlands dynamic and identity in the region, but maybe not necessarily evenly in the same way on each side. There's the one particular picture, I think, of, of Wallet Avenue. You can see the background of, of Detroit. And it's, it's quite amazing. It's almost in the city. You couldn't reverse that image. Well, you can. It's just maybe a little less dramatic. <laughs> In that sense. Or, or, or you have to dig a little bit deeper. You have to get past the, the big buildings and in order to get into some of those, those stories. Well, and that for me was, that was kind of, that's sort of an apt metaphor for the research process. And Detroit also has a multiple identity, you know, in, in Motor City and in a different way that kind of, I think is looming a little more evidently than the border aspect to it. But I, it's still, especially right downtown Detroit, I mean, you're literally on the river, you're on the borderline as you're within the city itself so one of the things that i've i've noticed when i walked when i walked in windsor was the the sense of looming the looming bridge in 1929 the bridge in 1930 is the is the the tunnel 
What does the bridge do to the relationship between these two cities and how does it complicate leasing? On the one hand, it streamlines what was already a really robust crossing process. You're no longer relying on ferries. Larger numbers of people can cross uh, much more easily. Thousands show up for the opening of this bridge, right? And they walk across and it's sort of this big showing. And yet at the same time, this, this era is starting to bring in or, or it's starting to literalize a much more evident policing apparatus at the border. And so the process of crossing with border guards, it's not what we have today exactly, but we're sort of starting to build up in that sense. And that can often frustrate local residents who aren't necessarily used to that the same sort of interrogations or just slowing up the process. So I sort of see it as an important moment that had been building with, with the cross-border connections, but that makes that travel much more easier, quite literally, and then changes some of that, some of that dynamic. And so it is. It's that the formalizing and the, the actual appearance of having to, of having booths at the other side, where you can have customs uh, agents standing there. Well, and they would have had those for ferries, but just the ease of travel, not waiting on a schedule. It's not limited by numbers in the same way. And it, this just adds another and makes it an easier process for for people to cross back and forth. Is it easier to police that movement of people back and forth? That's a hard question to answer. I think that was the goal. And they built the inspection stations with that very process in mind that they could get more people through every hour, that they would be able to know if people were smuggling illicit goods or not paying customs duties. But the reality is actually a lot more complicated because 1929, we're also at the height of prohibition in the United States. And so this creates all sorts of regulatory and policing headaches and problems for both local, state, and, and federal policing forces. So you know, a smuggler is not necessarily using the bridge or the tunnel to, to smuggle illicit products, and especially in this case, alcohol. And so in some ways, you're seeing them formalizing a process at the very moment where it's showing some of its weakest ability or inabilities to actually stop what they were trying to stop. And so I think that, you know, that sort of speaks to both the effort of the state to try to, you know, maintain its, its goals and objectives in the moment and its inability to do that ever fully. And so that 1929 is sort of that the irony of making this easier at a time in which they're also trying to more tightly control, you know, alcohol smuggling, for example. There's this uh, great cartoon of a police officer or a customs officer who's uh, manhandling this, this smuggler, the rum, the, the rum runner. And he's, as he does this, he's, uh, the, the title of the cartoon is Clumsy. And as he does this, he's standing on the, on the vacation of, uh, of John Public. The police are often criticized for being clumsy and for interfering where they're not wanted. Yeah, it's the public responses are are complicated in the book to the extent that on the one hand that, you know, especially when I get in the 40s and 50s and we're looking at um, policing morality and vice. And there's a lot of local residents who see a role for police in protecting communities and cleaning up neighborhoods, you know, however we want to sort of define that. And yet at the same time, people want to go about their business without any interference. And so when you create more regulations, when you require border crossing cards, for example, like they start in the 1920s, customs duties, these things start to irritate people who are crossing daily, who didn't have to do that before, where lines are getting longer. You know, historian Tom Klug has written a lot about this and the letters that people would write complaining about the holdups and the inspections. And so this, this real sense that these are interconnected communities. And it was not uncommon for someone to live in Windsor and work in Detroit and literally cross every day for work or vice versa. Even little changes could really hamper those experiences. And, and people felt that on a regular basis. You can imagine if your business relies on 
tourists or, you know, people coming across and buying goods or, you know, medical services, whatever it might be, if you're losing customers who feel like it's becoming increasingly more difficult to cross, that affects you very directly. And so you're going to look at that differently as as it starts to affect, you know, your bottom line or your business. You know, the RCMP in in Toronto are talking about all the Americans who are coming up. The traders are talking about coming into Canada for stronger kicks. Does that work for both sides? Do you see that more Americans trying to escape into Canada to have their weekend away? One of the challenges for me researching this was that um, Canadians were sort of one part of visitors that traveled to Detroit in a way that Americans were just so much in number, um, you know, as travelers and tourists, so much more obvious in Windsor. You know, and they talk about, oh, the, the accents of the Americans in the bars or the you know, people that just were evidently American to Windsorites. And so in a way that Detroit, I think, was larger, um, visitors from all over, you know, were in from the suburbs, were sort of part of that downtown dynamic when I look at the vice districts or the night times or leisure activities. And so I just think they didn't, it doesn't have as as large of a presence in Detroit um, as as Americans did in Windsor. But it certainly is there. And I, I you know, I really did try to, um, you know, trace what did it mean for Canadians, whether they're from Windsor or further, further in, um, in the interior of Ontario, that what did this mean for them to come to an American city and how did they understand, for example, the racial dynamics within a city like Windsor that was highly segregated and at the height of uh, what was the growing civil rights movement and, and tensions in the city as well. And so, you know, there's just, there are different aspects to studying Canadians traveling to sort of a larger metropolis than Americans traveling to a smaller city where it's a little more obvious that they're they make up a larger proportion of the economy. It's a little more dependent on that money than, than Detroiters were. Would you say then the border was kind of more present in Windsor than it was in Detroit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I think that's still the case today. Um, like I said, it's it's Windsor is, at least in my, my time that I've spent there, uh, Windsor to me is a pretty evidently a border town. Um, whereas Detroit is a, it's an urban center on the border that in a way that's a little bit, um, you know, just kind of some of that uneven dynamic, I think, is it just sort of looms throughout loomed throughout the whole time I was researching the book. A big, a big part of I think a, a big part of your argument is to say that you know the history of Windsor and Detroit has to be seen as connected and not not as separate. Um, there's a, there's a kind of a dependence interdependency between these two places, um, and and I think you've you've made it fairly clear that there's a it's. Um, asymmetrical. It's uh, there's, a, there's a greater dependence of, uh, in Windsor on what happens in Detroit. Would that, would that be a fair? Yeah, I know. I, I certainly think that's part of the dynamic. You know, I mean, think it just as an example. If you pick up, and, and I did this when I started the project, pick up. Uh, you know, most books on the city of Detroit, and look at the index, and you are most likely not going to see Windsor, Ontario, or Canada listed as a key term. And it's not the same in the research the other way. And so I think, you know, just to me as thinking about how do we understand this city? Why is it we talk about Detroit as though it's not on an international border? It's, you know, it, and, and how is it we can do that? You just can't do the same when you're studying southwestern Ontario, for example. Often when, you, when, we, when we talk about history of policing, we, we tend to privilege the perspective of the police. Um, and I I, I get a strong sense that you're pushing back against that here. Um, you give us a lot of the stories of, uh, of people who are the targets of police activity. How did you come to that 
Um, was that an archives? Was that a choice? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I've sort of moved toward policing uh, coming out of this project, but I didn't approach it originally thinking this was going to be a, about a history of policing the border. Um, I was actually really interested in the, sort of the histories of people who worked in vice economies or industries, um, how they understood their role in local economies, what their, you know, their place in neighborhoods and communities. I was influenced certainly by early sort of social histories, thinking about history from the bottom up or telling stories that we often think are unimportant, at least in the sort of telling histories of nations or presidents or political figures. Um, I was really interested in this as a community study. What does it mean to live in a, a border region? I ended up uh, sort of coming across these stories about vice and the important role it was playing. So that's sort of the direction I ended up going based on, on the archives. I was really interested in a history in a lot of ways of, of peoples. So how do you how do you get to their stories? How do you get to their perspectives? That's definitely one of one of the biggest challenges. I certainly. Um, relied a lot on state records, which has a, a real drawback, and you have to be careful because these are records like court records, police arrest records, official documents, investigations, uh, government uh, or governor's records, for example. Often for people who don't want to be traced. Exactly. And so you, you, you're only getting a snapshot of, of what's really happening. And in a lot of ways, these are representing the ideals, values, goals, objectives of the people who created those records, right? So who had a very particular goal when creating them. So for me, it was about bringing together different types of sources in order to, to think about who are these people, what are their lives. Newspaper stories might give you, for example, the address of a brothel that was busted on a Saturday night in the 50s. Um, and it'll list the, the names, the ages, the people, largely to shame them right, um, as part of a cleanup effort. And then putting that together with uh, police arrest registries that give you demographic information, everything from marital status to religion to place of birth to local residence now, kind of getting a sense of who the person is, and then combining that with whatever I could find in terms of letters or, in one case, an autobiography of a madam that worked in Detroit. So the way to deal with a bias is actually to basically triangulate it. And to recognize it, right, and just be upfront with this is what you have. Sometimes what the information that you can glean from it is speculative and you just have to, that's just the reality for historians. In some ways, working in the mid 20th century, you almost, there's almost like a, too much, not too, I would never say that, but there's, it's extensively recorded and yet in very particular ways that don't necessarily align with what you're hoping to find or look for. And so it's a case of just being clear about what you can do with the sources and, and what you can't. Your your final chapter, which deals with these two Senate committees, is quite is is quite a good bringing together of public perception and state intention. How did you come up with these two uh, Senate committee reports? Yeah, the nineteen fifty five Senate committees. Well, and what was so great from my perspective as a historian is that these were Senate committees held on essentially both of them were tasked with studying the drug problem in each country. And they happened the same year. And in fact, the two of the Canadian senators were asked to come sit on the American Senate Committee. And so um, there was a real connection between the two. And so it provided a way to compare and contrast how the Senate committees played out in the Canadian context and, and how, and they were much larger in the US context. It was a much larger scale, took much longer, but they provide this opportunity to think about what kind of language are people using about drug users? Um, and addiction. 
how did the tactics differ or, or what what was similar? How did they talk about the border on each side of it and, you know, from different perspectives? And so they're long documents with, you know, lots of just really rich information that, that gives you all sorts of perspectives, everything from interviews with drug users themselves, you know, to policing agencies, to clergy, to social and moral reformers. So it gives you kind of this wide spectrum to think about the way that drug use and the drug trade was being portrayed and perceived in the post-war years. Was, was that cooperation, is that is that more normal or? Well, I think it was exceptional. I they, at least the Senate committee stated this was the first time that Canadian senators had been invited to actually sit on a U.S. Senate committee, you know, as officials. And they were the first ones to speak before it. So it was an interesting sort of acknowledgement of the importance of that relationship. Part of it is that the Canadian Senate had wrapped up its uh, uh, its committee hearings already, and so they kind of had experience. They were brought down as they had already gone sort of through this in within Canada, and now this, the United States is going to take on a similar role. But in some ways, then, it, it also speaks to what was an effort at um, international relationships within the Cold War period. So building a connection between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, really being able to build up an enforcement apparatus um, to uh, building cross-border cooperation in the sort of sophisticated modern way and providing themselves as contrast to iron curtains, regulations under communism. But this was cooperation and friendship across the border, at least in the official context. It often did not actually play out that way as, as policing on the ground gets much more complicated and so there's that. It's a really interesting relationship between the, how the community, um, the the policing institutions, the interdependence between them is uh, fluctuates, and and I mean that would the 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 story of the of these police officers be, basically being asked to act as traffic cops outside the the brothels. I thought was a very good illustration of this community entanglement that happens, um, and I I assume that was probably said in jest, but it does seem to me that yeah, um, what is deemed vice from a from a faraway place in the community itself may actually have a very different meaning um, or a different acceptability. Part of the book was trying to think about, you know, it, there's the legal history and there's the law, but then there's the actual practice of people. So the difference between talking about legal, illegal versus licit, illicit, what's accepted or unacceptable by community standards isn't always the same thing as what's legal or illegal according to the law, right? And prohibition was the most obvious example of that failure of the federal legislation to actually take tone of uh, of the people that it would be enforced against. So, I remember that story of the farmer driving from Kansas just across the border. <laughs> well, and it was even fascinating the way that it led to hotels and the Canadian side of the border suddenly investing in ice boxes for the refrigerators and things that would entice the tourists for what they knew they were actually there for. Right. So. <laughs> Part of the, the the construction of this of this book is that you, you yes you have a border yes you have regulatory regimes on it but you also have a community there which is trying to figure its own responses to the laws own responses to um, nation projects um, and at the same time to get to work and to be clear that community is divided there are many people who wanted stricter enforcement of these laws right they wanted a vice cleanup so I was trying to look at the different perspectives of what to some it's a it's a crime it makes the community more dangerous or unsafe. And to others, it's a way of life and a necessity. And so I, I think that that dynamic also internally, border aside, um, sort of is another dividing line within the communities that I was, I was really interested in. Is, is that, would you, I mean, there are two cities, but in some ways it's almost one community. Um, is there a way in which the, the border cr generates uh, a shared 
community experience? I think for some people, it does. Part of this is the question of who has mobility, who can cross the border. And one of the things that I, I, I try to look at and be clear about is that city like Detroit in the 50s, um, well, even beyond uh, certainly racial lines often determined where you would go, what businesses you patronize. This was inherent in that dynamic. And one of the questions around borderlands often, well, can't everything be a borderland? And in some ways I, I do. I talk about urban spaces as there are borders. There are borders between white suburbs and black downtown neighborhoods, for example, that are were very real and lived experiences. In some ways, the vice districts became a place actually where interracial interactions happen more so in Detroit than maybe in the suburbs or surrounding neighborhoods. There are internal lines as well that that sort of animate it. So I think that there you can speak about a borderland experience, but not everyone certainly shared that in the same way um, or to the same extent. How do the change in laws affect the way in which the border is approached? Because um, we we start to see uh, now, even even if we begin, if we add in COVID era, we could say, well, yeah, you're not you're not crossing the border until you uh, get a vaccine shot. Previously, it was um, not carrying uh, alcohol across. Seeing um, legalization of marijuana in Canada, I don't know what, what the state is in 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 uh, in Michigan, but. Obviously, the, the drugs and alcohol, um, maybe even with prostitution laws, that may be shifting. How, how does the changing of laws and legalization of things happen, uh, change the way in which the border will be crossed or approached? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly can have a pretty dramatic impact for thinking in a more contemporary context. I mean, really, I started this project kind of in the early post 9-11 era, and that dramatically, the laws passed in the wake of that dramatically affected the U.S.-Canada border. Um, and we're felt quite literally right now, suddenly you have to have a passport. Um, you're seeing a much more intensified surveillance, all discussions about the types of technologies that they were going to be able to use in the name of sort of war on terror, what all those conversations, right? I mean, laws have a, a really important and a direct and tangible impact on border crossing experiences and policies. COVID's a great example, right? The 14-day quarantine in Canada, for example, if you do cross conversation around gun laws in the U.S. and then how guns end up in Canada is a, you know, a huge part of contemporary debates, um, all sorts of ways. And I think what's really important thinking about the legal system and the impact of laws is that these are generally laws written far from the border um, that get implemented into a local or on a local community or within a local context they might not really make that much sense for or that at least weren't necessarily consulted or part of that process and so that was something particularly in the book that i that this idea that you know you write a piece of legislation in washington or ottawa but these are people that maybe never have been to the border even for example and so um, they often have unintended consequences that have a pretty important impact on on local communities lives Certainly questions around humanitarian uh, issues, human rights. Um, today, we know a change in a law, an executive order can make a dramatic impact on, on human life. It never would underplay the importance of what a law will do, both what it was intended to do and what it, was, what, what it actually does are often different. You know, I think that that's, I think that's an important part. That being said, I, I think that the caveat I would, I would add to that is even with the change in laws, vice economies continue, people migrate. It's never a totalizing project. And I think that that says something about nations and the way that they try to enforce their, their power, um, that people find a way um, you know, to whatever the industry might be. If there's a demand, uh, if there's economic incentive, um, then we can see that even the strictest laws often are, are not enough to maintain that sort of state order the way that, it, that it, maybe officials might hope.
You conclude with that discussion of the of the riot in Detroit, which kind of wakes everybody up to the fact that, oh, there, there are serious issues related to policing, basically. Is that a backlash in many ways to that, to that initial chapter on, on the, the Hanrahan saying, we need to have more police? Well, I guess I'm wondering, is there a bookend with that conclusion? Yeah, I, for me, that um, it made sense in terms of the borderlands relationship, a number of the sources that I came across um, particularly from the Canadian side of the border, talked about that being living through 67 and literally watching from the other side. They closed the border down for several days because of this. So people couldn't cross back and forth. And I mean, it, it transforms the city of Detroit in important ways. Um, it increased white flight out of the city. I mean, this it highlights the problem of racialized policing, police brutality that since, you know, early in the, the 40s, when I start looking at the post-war period, is evident. And we're constantly, Black community members, organizations, we're calling out. So this is decades in the making. I think it's a it's an important moment in the sense of, particularly, I think, Canadian perceptions of American cities. By the late 60s, um, the reputation of cities as more violent, as certainly seemed to be more common in some of that. And I think that it really would need it just felt like another study to dig into those transformations um, as we get into the late 60s and 70s. There's also, there had been economic problems in, in the region, um, certainly in the 40s and 50s, but by the late 60s and 70s, there's a, there's a major transformation there again. So at the same time, there's an opening up of the legalization of different types of vice-related industries. So it just felt like a moment where enough shifted that it, it would become just a, another story or a really long book. <laughs> is there an arc here of, of policing in this or, or an arc here of, of vice? What I was interested in, in sort of the, the way it actually kind of waxes and wanes in some ways, the, um, and, and part of why I started in the 20s is just the pivotal role that prohibition um, and enforcement played in, the, in, in through the early to mid-30s. Do you kind of see a lull in industries? And then again, with another boom by the 40s and 50s. And so I actually think what you see in terms of policing, is an intensification, but more importantly, a professionalization, which in some ways makes it more effective, um, right? So surveillance strategies for drug trafficking, for example, become more sophisticated. The regular use of fingerprinting, you know, all sorts of technologies. I wouldn't necessarily say there's an arc in the 40s and 50s. It's rather a sign of, I think, a trajectory that's an intensification of policing. I mean, the conversations we're having today um, have grown out of what is now been more than half a century in the making. And so I think that that's, um, it, you know, you rarely see things scaled down uh, in terms of policing, enforcement, technologies, right? Once once they're, you sort of up a new normal, that becomes kind of a baseline. And I think that that's something we see happening in the, uh, between the 20s and the 60s that I'm, I'm interested in. Well, we certainly see with the development of the of toll booths on the bridge, the, the increasing control of the border, the ability to, to, to actually watch whether, whether we're using drones and sur surveillance, um, helicopters. What, what is it about the border that, that is so fruitful, I guess, for, or so attractive for illicit activity? Why does it attract so much policing activity, so much um, vice activity? What is it about the, that, that uh, what is it about the, the connection between Detroit and Windsor that um, generates so much energy around these underground economies? Well, in the period that I'm looking um, in the 40s and 50s, in part, it was the boomtown sort of status of Detroit and Windsor, the wartime and the early post-war economy. 
a lot of people were drawn into the region for all sorts of jobs and, and work. And that includes um, illicit forms of work. It's a place where you've got people crossing through. So you've got customer bases. Um, it's also a connecting point for things like drug smugglers themselves moving drugs down from Montreal or up through Chicago through this hub. So you've got sort of supply there. In some cases, some of the specifics were sort of circumstantial. Crackdown in Montreal meant a lot of women ended up having to leave. And the place they heard that was booming and take the train down into Windsor. And so end up there locally. Certainly the, the sort of downtown city core of Detroit, like every major city, had its vice district and compounded by the fact that you've got customer base on both sides of the border. And so it's a really common reality for border towns across North America. They facilitate tourism and trade and travel. And part of that is people who feel like you can cross the border, do things you might not do at home. We think of Vegas, right? What, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And some, you know, what happens in Windsor stays in Windsor. There's this sort of perception that you're, you're, you're somewhere else. You can do something you might not do at home or in your hometown or around people who might know you. That's why it was so devastating for the people who got their names printed, <laughs> you know, when a, when a brothel was, was busted because, well, now your wife is going to hear about that. So it's some of that fantasy of, of, of crossing spaces that, that I try to sort of dig into in, in the book. I'd like to ask you a little more on this need to view these two cities um, as connected and how borderlands histories in general need to do that kind of work to connect places rather than, than split them. Um, I think we, you mentioned before, um, not so much comparative, but connective. What would you say, how would you explain what a connected history is? So I guess to contrast it with a, a comparative where you're thinking, you know, there's one space, another space, what's similar, what's different, right? That's sort of a, a setting up these sort of dualisms on each side and assuming you're going to find something necessarily different. For me, it's about thinking not necessarily what unites people across the border, but it shapes the region, but it, it doesn't completely divide or disconnect people. And so when I think about connective, it's across the national line, across communities, across neighborhoods, um, but also thinking connectively between U.S., Canada, U.S., Mexico, for example. What can we learn by taking snapshots of border towns in multiple spaces, thinking more connectively rather than assuming they're going to be inherently very different types of spaces? So to me, it's just connective kind of early on in the project seemed to fit the dynamic, particularly in Detroit and Windsor, but I think more generally as a more methodology for me is the, the way I, I tend to think about how can we think across communities. And there is something, you know, in the book, at least in the 40s and 50s, that kept coming across, and it was this phrase that I used, the border spirit. It brings people together, you know, that both share, uh, you know, common experiences, but also bring their own sort of unique perspectives. And so the tourism of the 40s and 50s, I'm really even back to the 20s, really, though, was promoting this idea of it's easy, it's convenient, you can travel to Canada, you can travel to the US, but that it's so fascinating because there's just those subtle differences that make it so much more interesting. In fact, they, they were very much banking on that feeling of, of both connectivity and difference at the same time as part of the tourist industry, for example. So I was interested particularly in economic ties in the sort of cultural ties that connect people and in the institutional, in this case, policing apparatuses. But for me, I'm, I'm interested in how those all kind of intersect. Dr. Holly Caribou, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about your book. This is an exciting study of the implications of vice economies, citizenship, and border policing. Thank you. I would like to thank Kathy Buchanan for the support that has made this postdoctoral fellowship. Thank you to the History Department at Queen's University 
and the Nugent Fund for supporting this series. This interview was edited and produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you.